Well, welcome everyone. If you are new or visiting our church family today, my name is Aaron. I have the incredible privilege of being the pastor here at Coastline, and we're so glad that you chose to be with us. Those of you joining us online, I know many of you are still on vacation, uh, and you deserve it after last year. Take some time away and get relaxed, get refreshed. Just know that we love you and we miss you, and we can't wait till you're back with us. If you've got your Bible, I want to ask you to pull out your Bible and uh, hold it with me for just a moment. This is the Word of God, and I love this book because this is unchanging truth. It is the foundation of our life. We build our life on God's Word. It is the only thing that you can stand on in a changing world that will always be secure, that will always be Solid. You know, a lot of people ask me about this issue or that issue culturally or socially. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? To be very honest, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what did God say? Because the truth is God is not silent on cultural issues happening in our world today. God is not silent on social issues. The Bible has an awful lot to say about what's happening in the world today. So it doesn't matter what I think about this or that. It matters what did God say? And we, we are a church where we build our life on God's Word. It is the authority of our life. And every once in a while, we just need to take a moment and recognize that because we live in a world right now that's trying to discredit everything. They're trying to twist and change everything, and we need something that is absolutely unchanging. People have tried to destroy this book for thousands of years, and it's still here. And it's still just as relevant, just as practical, and just as powerful as it has ever been, and that's why we build our life upon this. So if you have your Bible, pull it out and hold it up with me. We're going to declare God's Word over us as we get into the teaching today. Say this with me. This is my Bible. I am what it says that I am. I can do what it says I can do. I have what it says I have. Holy Spirit, Teach me God's word today. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I love his word. Let me ask you a question as we begin today. How many of you love the feeling of going to bed at night defeated? Like you love feeling defeated in life. You love feeling like life is crushing you. Life is, it's overtaking you. You don't don't feel victory at all. You just love the feeling of defeat at the end of the day. How many of you love the feeling of defeat? Nobody. Nobody loves to feel defeated at the end of the day. And, And I want to help you understand, that's not what God wants for you either. God's desire for you is to live in victory. God's desire for you, according to his word, is that you are an overcomer. That life does not overcome you, but you overcome life through his power that is working in and through you. So as we looked at the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians, chapter 1 through chapter 3, we see all about God's power in us. God has this incredible power that he's deposited in you, and it's in fact the same power that brought Christ Jesus back to life from the crucifixion. Incredible power, the fullness of God, the measure of God living within you. Now we are at the 50-yard line, chapter 4, verse 1, and all of a sudden, the letter of Ephesians is going to take a little bit of a turn, and it's going to become very 
very practical. Because God's desire for you is not that you live defeated, but that you live in victory. And so Paul is about to tell you how you take this incredible power that God has deposited inside of you and teach you how to live it out, teach you how to live in victory, teach you how to walk in freedom, teach you how to live out the life that is inside of you. And it's going to get very, very good, but it's going to take a little shift. It's going to take a little turn as we get very practical. See, a lot of people, they love chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. They don't typically like chapters 4, 5, and 6 because it gets a little bit more challenging because it's how we walk it out, how we live it out. Now, just give me the power and let me feel all the good stuff, but I don't want any responsibility to walk it out, and it's not the way the letter goes. So let's dive in to chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. If you have your Bible, you can read along with me. It says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you to live a life worthy of your calling that you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling of the fullness of God that lives inside of you. You have the very power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. In other words, Paul says, act like it. You have the power of God, the power of the God who created the heavens and the earth and all of the stars and set the galaxies in place living inside of you. Start behaving according to the power that is within you. You see, chapter 1 through 3, Paul shows you who you are. And then chapter 4, 5, and 6, he shows you what it produces. Based on who you are, this is how you live. Now, you got to be very careful because when you get into chapter 4 onward, it's very easy to turn it into a religion. Paul's getting into a bunch of commands. He's getting into a bunch of rules. He's getting into a bunch of behaviors that I have to live by. You have to understand, no, 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 he's telling you first, chapter 1, 2, and 3, who you are in Christ, as a result of the power that is in you, here's how you activate it. Here's how you live it out. Here's what it produces in you. So it's very important that you first see what you have in Christ and who you are in Christ before you try to walk it out. That's why we have chapters 1 through 3. Moving on, verse 2, now he gets into the very practical look at what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a part of church? What does it mean to live in Christian community? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Today we have the clearest picture in the Bible of what a God expects out of the church. And every one of us, as we read throughout the first three chapters, Paul says God gives us this incredible power to be a part of church, to be a part of community, to be a part of God's family and God's body. Now we get into the expectation of what 
does it look like? So with that being said, every single person here, if you've been part of our church for any period of time, if you attend regularly, if you, if you are a part of this family, you have an opportunity and responsibility to be an everyday part of a great church. Not just a church, but a great church. So let me ask the question today, what makes a church a great church? What divides it from being a church to being, because there's a lot of churches. So what separates a church from a great church? How do we as a community build a great church? One word, it's the heart of the entire passage we read, unity. The expectation from God is unity, that we are united. That's why it says in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity. Keep the unity. Again, you can't keep unity by yourself. All throughout this book, Paul is very, very clear. God doesn't work in us individually without the purpose of connecting us corporately. And now we're getting into the corporate side of what does it mean to be unified as the body of Christ. So let me ask you this question. This is a question that everyone, I want to encourage everybody here today to ask of themselves. A very important question for if God has placed us here and God has put the measure of his power inside of us in full, if, if the very same power that brought Jesus Christ back to life is in each and every one of us, then I urge you to ask this question of yourself. What can I do to make Coastline a great church? If this is the family that God has set me in, if this is where God has planted me, if this is where God has called me, what is my part to play? What is my responsibility to make this a great church? Paul gives us seven very practical steps in this passage. Seven very clear points of what all of us can and should do if the life of Christ is in us to make our church family great. Not for our glory, by the way. It's not for the name of Coastline. It's for his glory. It's all for him. This is simply the family he's placed us in. It's simply the community that God has connected us to. So let me give you seven very practical steps on what it means to be a great church. First, develop three attitudes. He starts by saying there are three very specific attitudes that you need to develop in your life. Attitudes that we should exhibit because of the power of God in us. In verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient so that you can bear with one another in love. I want you to be humble, gentle, and patient so that you can bear with one another in love. So what are the three attitudes that we have to develop as a church family? Humility, gentleness, and patience. This is how God is calling us to love one another in our church community. Can you imagine what the community around us would see in Coastline if these are the attitudes every one of us committed to develop in our life? In fact, here's the way Jesus put it in John chapter 13. He said, so I'm giving a new commandment to you now. Love each other just as much as I love you. How much does Jesus love you? Just think about the cross. And Jesus is saying, I want you to love each other as much as I love you. 
do you realize he loved us when we didn't love him? He loved us when we were spitting on him, when when, when disregarded him, when we disrespected him. And he's saying, I want you to love each other in your church family the very same way that I loved you when I hung on the cross. And he goes on to say, your strong love for each other will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Do you realize we are proving to the world something right now? As a church, we are proving to the world around us something. The question is, what are we proving to this world? What are we showing the world around us that we are? Let me give you a couple of definitions for these words, because I've also found that these three words, humility, gentleness, and patience, can oftentimes be confused to what they really are, especially the first one, humility. Humility is not insecurity. It's not low self-esteem. It's not thinking... Let me put it like this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. It's simply putting other people first. It's thinking about other people before you think about yourself. Humility, in essence, is lifting up the Lord. It's a word that has all to do with perspective. It's how you see things. It's how you see yourself in relationship to other people. Humility is lifting up God, recognizing our dependence on Him. My real strength comes from the Lord. That's what humility is. That's why I don't have to look out for number one, because my strength isn't in me. A prideful person is someone who depends on themselves. A humble person is somebody who depends on the Lord. It's the difference between pride and humility. Gentleness. Gentleness is a word that we often struggle with, especially as men. Because we hear the word gentle, and it sounds like weak. It sounds like soft. Like, like I don't want to be soft. I want to be a warrior. I want to I conquer for the kingdom of God. I don't want to be gentle. That just... It sounds so weak because we don't understand the word. You see, Jesus was incredibly gentle. Gentleness is a quality that every single one of us need in our life. So let me give you the best definition I can for gentleness. Gentleness is power under control. Somebody who is gentle has great strength, great power, great force, but they know how to harness it. They know how to control it. They know how to steward it. Think about a gentle wind pushing a boat. We know that wind can be incredibly destructive. Hurricanes can capsize ships. But a gentle wind, a wind under control, can become incredibly powerful to a ship. Think about a gentle horse. What is a gentle horse? A horse that has been broken and that you're able to ride the horse. You see, an unbroken horse can kill someone. It can be very, very dangerous But when the horse becomes gentle, then people can ride it. You've got the strength and power of this incredible beast that's now been tamed, and it becomes gentle. That's what gentleness is all about. It's power under control. God has incredible power under control on our behalf. Patience. What is patience? In the Greek, patience is a transliteration of two words, long-tempered. That's what the word patience means in the Greek, long-tempered. So let me put it like this. Patience is not having a short temper. Patience is having a long temper. How many of you ever met someone that they like to brag about themselves? I just have a short fuse. Well, as followers of Jesus, the Bible says, I don't want you to have a short fuse. I want you to have a long fuse. I want you to be 
patient with people. See, here's the truth about life that I know. There are people out there who, whose entire spiritual gift is to annoy and aggravate you. I mean, it just seems like that's why they're on earth. Like they're there to help you learn patience, to help you have a long fuse, a long... So let me, let me give you some great advice. Just pre-decide ahead of time to be patient. Don't be surprised when somebody annoys you. Like, like, it's so funny to me. People, I can't believe they did that. Why, did, why, why, why couldn't you believe that? I mean, they're people. You live on a planet full of people. It happens all the time. Why is it such a shock when somebody does that to you? Why don't you just wake up every morning and decide, God, today, someone is going to annoy me. Somebody is going to get under my skin. Somebody is going to aggravate me. So I'm just going to pre-decide now that when that happens, I'm going to have a very long fuse. Do you realize this is what it means to be the body of Christ? This is what God is asking us of a Christian community. How do you learn these things? Well, the best way to learn them is to look at the cross. Stare at the cross. Ponder the cross. Meditate on the cross. You see, on the cross... There's no greater act of humility. Jesus laid his life down for others. On the cross, there's no greater act of gentleness. He could have called down legions of angels from heaven to destroy everybody. Yet he kept his power under control for our sake. On the cross, there's no greater act of patience. He hung there six hours suffering for us in pain and agony so that we could be saved and we could be healed. Look at the cross. Here's the second thing that Paul gets at. If we're going to be the Christian community he's called us to be, determine to work at it. You got to realize it's going to be some hard work. It's going to be some hard. Now, we don't strive because we know it's his power that works in us, but we still work hard. That's why Paul says in verse three, make every effort. It's going to take an effort. If we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, it's going to take some effort. And I know we all want chapter one through three because it's the good stuff. But when we get into chapter four, it takes some effort. We got to start working through issues in our life. We got to work through baggages. We got to work through past faults and hurts and wounds. It takes effort. Do you, do you know the number one reason why? people are not involved in a connect group. You know what the number one reason is? It takes effort. Number one reason, it takes effort. That's why Paul says, make every effort. They say, well, I don't have the time to make the effort. Make the time to make the effort. It's how we bring unity to the church. It's how we're unified. Here's the reality. We are one body. We all have a place in that body. And God has asked us to stay unified in the body. So let me ask the second question. What kind of effort are you putting into your go team right now? Well, I'm not on the go team. Hmm. Imagine if my hand says, I don't want to be a part of Aaron's go team. I'm going to do my own thing. And my hand decides to separate from the arm to go do its own thing because he doesn't want to be a part of this go team called Aaron because I am a body and my hand has a place in the body. I mean, no, my hand's not going to accomplish very much and it's going to limit the body. How often does God look down from heaven and see a bunch of severed body parts? Because we're not unified. 
my hand has to stay unified to my arm, and it takes effort. But when my hand stays unified to my arm, then I'm able to accomplish a lot more as a body than if my hand decided to not be unified to the arm. Can you imagine what our church could do if we were unified? Could you imagine what we could accomplish in this community if we made every effort to stay in unity, to find our place, to stay connected, to serve together, to work together as one body, not as a bunch of body parts? The other thing is my body is much more fulfilled when it stays connected. My hand on its own doesn't have any life, any blood, any nerves, nothing, nothing. It, it just rots and decays if it gets isolated, and that's what happens to people spiritually. They're not connected to the body. They attend church, but nowhere in Scripture does the Bible ask us to attend church. It tells us to be the church. That's what we see over and over and over throughout Ephesians. Here's the third thing Paul gets at. Discover the need for unity and purpose. We're to be unified in our purpose and variety in abilities. Because there is confusion when we talk about unity. People think unity is uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. We don't all need to look alike, act alike, and dress alike to be the body of Christ. I've been to churches like that, and they're weird. <laughs> you don't want to go to a church like that. We want variety in our church. We want to be unified between the purpose that God has given us, but we understand that there is a variety of abilities, a variety of personalities, variety of talents, and God brings us all together, and it makes us beautiful. That's why in verse 7 it says, to each one of us grace has been given. To each one of us. He didn't give grace to the whole. He gave grace to each one of us individually. Why? Your grace is different than my grace. You see, grace is a divine enablement. Grace is my spiritual gift. It's my ability that God has placed on my life, and it's unique, and it's different than yours. He didn't say, I gave grace to the church. He says, I gave grace to each one of you because we are all different. We all have something to add. God gives us unity of purpose. He calls us to fight for the same cause, but he puts us in different positions on the field. And let me say something about that for a moment. For something to be significant, it does not have to be prominent. See, a lot of us think for me to be valued, I've got to be prominent. Unfortunately, I've got one of the most prominent positions on this team. I get to stand up here every week in front of lights and a microphone and people listen to me. But can I tell you, just because my part on the team is more prominent than others does not make me any more significant than the others. I am not the most important person on this team. I'm just one part of this team. Let me put it like this. My nose, very prominent. I got a big nose. You can't miss it. It's there. Very prominent, but it's not that significant to me. Like you could cut my nose off and I would live just fine. I'd be ugly, but I'd live just fine. My lungs, on the other hand, are not prominent at all. You can't see them, but they are incredibly significant to me. I cannot live without them. So don't confuse yourself to think that I've got to have a prominent part on the team to be significant. Every person on this team is significant. We all get credit in heaven for everything this church accomplishes. 
I don't get rewarded more than you get rewarded for what the people who work in the parking lot, the people who make coffee, the people who are serving our children right now, the people working in the, in the sound booth and on the computers in the back, they are just as significant as I am, and we will be rewarded equally when we get to heaven for everything that this church has accomplished. Here's number four. The fourth thing Paul says is dedicate yourself to God's truth. This, this is a huge factor in how we stay unified. You see, what Paul gets into in this passage is the Bible teaches seven basic spiritual realities that will unify us. They will bring unity to your relationships. They will bring unity in the body of Christ. They actually form the foundation of unity, and it's in chapter 4 through 6. Paul says there is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope, when you are called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, of all, seven basic spiritual realities that are critically important to unity. How do they work? Every time you are tempted into disunity, every time where you want to fight with another Christian brother or sister, you, you, you want to like be disunified with other people in your church family, remember these. Remember these. One body. One body. We are one body. Whatever hurts them hurts me. My hand can't say, I can't stand that pinky toe. Like, like we're, we're going to get rid of that pinky toe. Drop a rock on that toe. Like, let's, just, let's crush it. Let's smash it. No, because if my hand decides to crush my toe, my hand is going to be in a whole world of pain because the whole body is going to be feeling that. So often we want to fight with one another and hurt one another and get mad at each other and get back at each other. Don't you understand you're hurting yourself? We are one body. We're not only one body, we're one spirit. And Paul says that spirit within us agrees. The spirit is in total agreement. The spirit is in total unity. So you are never going to get in a fight with another Christian brother or sister, and the Holy Spirit inside of you is going to say, I'm on your side. Can I tell you that's never going to happen? The Holy Spirit doesn't take sides. It's like, remember Joshua and the angel of the Lord came to Joshua and said, are you... And Joshua asked the angel, Lord, are you with us or against us? And he said, neither. Like, you're on my side or you're, you're, you're not with me, is what the angel of the Lord says. The Holy Spirit does not take sides. We have one spirit who's in agreement. So when you get into an argument with a Christian brother or sister, you need to know up front the Holy Spirit's not on your side because he doesn't take sides. He is in unity, and your job in that moment is to find the unity. Not to be right, but to find the unity, to find out where you're wrong, and to lovingly build unity. And there are times you may be right, but being right and being unified are not the same thing. There's one spirit, and he brings unity. We have one hope. We're going to spend eternity together. You might as well learn how to get along because you're going to be neighbors for an awful long time. We have the hope of heaven. We have one Lord. Next time you get angry at a Christian brother or sister, no matter what they did, I want you to have the thought, Jesus on the cross, thought about them as much as he thought about you. Jesus on the cross died for them as much as he died for you. Next time you get mad at a Christian brother or sister, think about that. It'll change your heart. It'll soften your heart quickly. We have one faith. We agree on the most important things. We're going to have unity around our core convictions, and we're only going to have a couple core convictions. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the only way to the Father. The Bible is the Word of God. We're going to have core convictions, and we're going to be unified on those because we have one faith, one baptism. 
We're marked by God as believers. We've gone public with our faith. Do you realize every time you get in a fight with a Christian brother or sister, the world is looking at you saying, why are they disagreeing? I thought they were one. They're supposed to be twins. They're twins in the faith, and here they are mad at each other. So often we make a mockery to the world around us because of our divisions. And if you want to know what Satan's strategy with COVID was, it was to divide the church. More than dividing America, he divided the church. We have Christians fighting over the stupidest things right now. And honestly, both are wrong. And we need to find the unity of Christ that God has called us to. And then finally, one God. We are both creative expressions of a loving God. Next time you get in a fight, next time you get mad, next time you get angry at a Christian brother or sister, think about these things. Think about making every effort for unity. And then look at the last part of the verse. It, again, it says, one God and Father of all. Now look at this. Who is over all, through all, and in all. Again, next time you have a fight, remember this verse in the middle of that relational struggle. Realize God is in that relationship. He's not abandoning you. He's over all. He's in all. In every conversation, in every relationship, he is there. So let, let, let me make this very practical for a moment and help you understand how we live this out. The key piece of advice I can give you is don't major on the minors. Churches are split over minor issues that really don't matter. I know churches that split because they change the color of carpet. Can you imagine standing before God in heaven one day? And God says, I see that I planted you in this church. You were called to be a part of this church, and I planted you there. Oh, it says in 2019 you left the church. Can you tell me why you left the church? Well, they changed the carpet. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be having that conversation with God when I'm standing in line with heaven one day. We don't major on the minors. In fact, we have three simple guidelines here at Coastline for how we handle this. First off, in essential beliefs, we have unity. And we only have a couple essential beliefs. And we're going to have unity, and we're going to fight for those. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's non-negotiable. Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. That's non-negotiable. The Bible is the Word of God. That's non-negotiable. But in non-essential beliefs, we have liberty. We have liberty. There's, I don't know how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but I know people spend their life studying revelations to try to figure that out. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not going to fight over issues that don't matter. And in all beliefs, we show love. Because here's the truth. When I get to heaven, I'm going to find out I'm wrong somewhere. I like, I like to think that I'm right. I like to think that I've got my doctrine perfect and everything I believe about the Bible is perfect. But the truth is, when I get to heaven, there's somewhere where I'm going to be wrong. So the Bible says, don't get involved in foolish arguments. And that's what's happening right now. We're losing our influence over our opinions. Opinions that have nothing to do with our core convictions, with our doctrine, with our theology, with our Christian beliefs. We've been sucked into the fight of this world. And we need to cut it out. We need to rise above it. We're not called to be in the world. We're called to be above all of the fray as Christians and show the world something different. Here's number five. Delight in the truth that God has gifted you. Now, this is going to be the one that may be a bit confusing. I'm going to make it as simple 
as I possibly can. You need to delight. You need to get so excited and fired up that God gave you a specific gift, that, that you have something that is unique to you that God gave you. Because Paul is very elaborate in explaining this. Paul almost kind of goes over your head a little bit trying to explain how awesome this point is that if you don't get it, you'll miss it very quickly. Verse 7, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ's apportionment. So you've got something unique to you. And now look at how he elaborates on this gift that has been given to you. This is why. Okay, so you have a grace that's been given to you. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. That's Psalm 68. And then in verse 9, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly rain regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. All of that to say he gave you a gift that's unique to you. Paul, what are you doing? I mean, that, that's, that's like out there for a moment unless you understand what he's saying. You see, these verses are filled with references to different truths. You see, he's quoting Psalm 68. It's an Old Testament verse that shows you Jesus' plan is to give you a gift that's unique to you. This whole passage is a reference to Jesus' superiority to the Ephesian goddess of Artemis. You have the temple of Artemis, one of the, the ancient temples of the ancient world. The goddess was Diana. Diana's legend was that she ascended to the very spot of the temple. And all Paul is trying to do is saying, listen, our God is so much greater than Diana. Diana means nothing to Jesus' superiority. He's actually challenging them and showing that Jesus is so much greater than, than the temple of Artemis and this goddess Diana, this Roman goddess, and he, and he completely is slamming her is what he's doing. Talking about Jesus being descended to the lower depths, it's one of the few places in the Bible talking about Jesus descending into hell on our behalf after the crucifixion, but then raising to the highest of heavens, ascending pretty elaborate way to say your God is so awesome, your God is so powerful, your God is so absolutely incredible, God are greater than every other God of this day and age, and he gave you a gift, so delight in it. Get excited that the God who is awesome, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords over every other God, loved you so much that he gave you something that is different to everyone else. He gave you something unique, a gift, an ability, a grace that is individual to you. Get excited about it. And then if that is true, verse point number six, depend on God-given leaders. This is the very next place Paul goes. So God gives you this gift, and he's an awesome God. So depend on God-given leaders who can help you develop your gifts. You see, gifts enable us to serve in the body of Christ, but people equip us for that service. In verse 11, Paul says, Christ himself, Christ himself, not the church, Christ himself gave us apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers, which in the Greek is actually one word. It's one calling, pastor slash teacher. It's combined together. Why? Why did, why did Christ give us these different roles in the church? To equip his people for works of service. So the job of pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, evangelists is to equip the body which is you, for the work of the ministry. Do you realize it's not my job to do the work of the ministry? You know, it's funny. People always say, well, you're the minister, aren't you? No, you're actually the minister. 
I'm the pastor. I'm the teacher. My job is to equip you, according to Jesus, to do the work of the ministry. Now, there's two parts leaders play in our life in this equipping. First is they help you discover. They help you discover. See, it is absolutely true that God has a gift on your life that is unique to you. There is a grace that is unique to you. You may serve on the same team as somebody else, but you bring a different flavor to that team. You bring a different flair to the team than everyone else on that team because there's something God has graced you to do better than anyone else. And finding that is one of the highest callings of our life. And so as a church, one of the ways we help you discover is what we call discover. Once a month, we have a discover class that is 100% designed for you to find the grace that God has placed on your life different than everyone else so that you can begin to do the work of the ministry. So this Wednesday night at 6 p.m., if you have not signed up yet, go right after service to the hub and sign up and say, I want to be a part of this. For those of you that were ever attended the growth track, this is the new name for the growth track. We just figured discover makes a lot more sense than growth track because it's all about discovering the grace God has put on your life so that you can find your place, so that you can begin to serve, that you can make the difference God has called you to make in your life. And if you call right now, there's a bonus. Five o'clock, we're going to walk you through the new building. So you'll actually get a tour of the new building, a walking tour as a bonus if you want to show up early. We're going to provide dinner, everything for you. I'm going to tell you my story, the story of our church. You're going to take an a, a, a assessment test that we created as a church to help you find your grace. That is the job of the leaders of the church, is to discover and equip you to do the work that God has called you to do. And then finally, how do I know if I got it right? So what if I go through the discover, and I think this is what I'm supposed to do? How do I know that I got it right? Well, number seven is very simple. Decide to use your gifts to serve others. The greatest way to discover your gift is by trying it out. Try it out. You'll find out very quickly whether you got it right. You'll find out very quickly whether, wow, I'm really good at this. And when I do this, it makes a difference. I see the needle moving. Lives are being changed. They're, and honestly, what we've discovered as a church is the greatest way to pastor you is to help connect you to your purpose. That's the best way to pastor people. The best way to pastor people is not to counsel them through their problems. It's to give them something to live for that is greater than their problems. Years ago, a lady came up to my pastor after service when I was an associate, and she had all these problems. She needed counseling, pastor, I need counseling. I've got all these problems. I don't know what I'm going to do. And he said, well, look, I'll, I, you know, I'd love to talk to you, but before I do that, I want you to do something for me. Let me give you some advice that may help you. And she said, oh, yes, pastor, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to pray? Do you want me to fast? He says, do you know how to bake cookies? She said, what? Do you know how to bake cookies? Yeah, I can bake cookies. Bake some cookies for your neighbor. And then bring them over to your neighbor's house and just tell them that you love them, Jesus loves them, and, and ask them if there's anything you can pray about with them. Well, that's not what I was looking for. Like, can I fast? Can I pray? I mean, that doesn't sound very spiritual at all. Just do it. So she did it. She baked cookies for a neighbor, and then she baked cookies for another neighbor, and baked cookies for another neighbor, and she forgot to set up her counseling appointment. A couple months later, my pastor saw her, and he said, hey, you never, you never set up that appointment. How's all those problems that were killing you and that were, that were overwhelming your life? She goes, well, I got so busy serving other people that I forgot all about my problems. <laughs> See, the best way to pastor people is to give them something to live for greater 
then there are problems. We don't do discover to try to keep you busy as a church. We do discover to fulfill Ephesians chapter 4. Because we know there is a grace on your life that is unique to you. And the best life you could ever possibly live is connecting to that purpose, living it out. It's the most fulfilling life you'll ever live. Why is it so mission critical for us? Because of the end of verse 12. It says, so that the body of Christ may be built up. When you connect to your purpose, when you connect to your gift, when you begin to live it out, when you find your place on the go team, the body of Christ may be built up. Do you realize you have a responsibility to build up the body? It's not my job to build up the body. It's my job to empower you to build up the body. It's my job to help you discover the grace that is on your life that is different than everyone else, to find your place on a team so that you can begin to serve, so that you can go to bed at night fulfilled knowing that you made an eternal difference in somebody's life, that the body may be built up. I love this quote, spiritual gifts are not toys to play with. They're not weapons to fight with. Too many people are fighting over this stuff. No, they are tools to build the church with. So I thought a cool way to end today's message is to go through what we're going to go through Wednesday night at, at the end of the first class. And that's our partnership covenant. You see, when God places you into a church, it's a covenant. It's a covenant. It's, it's like wedding vows. God says, I want you to be faithful to this church family, to serve, to find your place, whether you're a hand, whether you're a foot, to find your place to serve, to make a difference. And one of the things we do in Discover is when we invite people into partnership, let's partner together to build God's kingdom. Let's partner together to make a massive difference for the kingdom here in North County. We all have a part to play. We all have a responsibility. So I thought, what would it look like if we ended today by just talking about the partnership covenant that so many of us have already made. You know, our partnership covenant is I will protect the unity of my church. I will protect. Paul said, make every effort for unity. So I'm going to act in love towards other church members. I'm going to refuse to gossip. What would our church look like if we outlawed gossip? Do you know how beautiful we would be to the community around us? Do you know how attractive we would be? I'm going to follow the vision and the leaders that God has placed in my life. I will share the responsibility of my church. I'm going to pray for its growth and for its health. I'm going to invite unchurched people to come and hear about Jesus, and I'm going to warmly welcome new people when I see them. I'm going to commit to supporting my church through tithing and faithfulness and giving and service. I'll serve the ministry of my church. I'm going to discover, develop, and release my gifts and talent. There is a grace on my life, and I'm not going to let it go to waste. I'm going to find out what that grace is, and I'm going to get involved, and I'm going to begin to serve. I'm going to grow spiritually through personal and corporate Bible study and prayer. I'm going to develop a servant's heart, and I'm going to find my place in the family to serve. And then finally, I'll support the testimony of my church. I'm going to receive the grace of God in my life as the foundation for my faith, not my performance, not my effort, God's grace. I'm going to operate with character and integrity in the workplace. I'm going to have a good reputation to everybody I do business with. I'm going to model faithfulness to God's family, the church, my Christian brothers and sisters. I'm going to support the testimony of my church. This is what Paul is talking about. See, a lot of the things you see us do as a church, it's all because of this. We're not trying to come up with new ways to keep people busy. We're trying to pastor people to live the Christian life according 
to Scripture. It's why we do what we do. Would you close your eyes with me for a moment? Father, in the name of Jesus, God, we all love chapter 1, 2, and 3. We love the thought of your power and your fullness alive in us. But it gets a little rough when we get into chapters 4, 5, and 6 because we, there's expectations for how we live out who we are. I pray, God, right now that you would help every person here identify their next step in this journey. To see how we can make every effort to be unified as a church. With every eye closed for just a moment, if you're here today, your next step may be surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. Because as you look at your life right now, Jesus isn't number one. I'm going to invite you to make Jesus number one. Maybe he was number one a long time ago, but he's not anymore. Maybe he's never been. But today you realize, I want Jesus Christ to be first in my life. With every eye closed, whether you're online or outside or in this room, just go ahead and place your hand over your heart for just a moment. And with your hand over your heart, in your heart, I want you to say this. Say, Jesus, today I invite you to be first place in my life. To be priority to me. And I commit to follow you and to live for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that today for the first time or you recommitted to Jesus being first today, I want to encourage you to stop by the hub after service and talk to somebody on our team. They'll help you identify your next step. And if you're here today and you don't know what your next step is in this journey, talk to someone. Say, hey, I need to figure out what my next step is. I think it might be this. I really don't know. Can you help me identify? All of our leaders here would love to help you identify a next step in your journey. Every one of us have a next step, including myself. Including myself. Would you stand with me? Again, I want to invite you Wednesday night. You can stop by and sign up for Discover. If you have not attended a growth track or a Discover in more than two years, I want to invite you to come and take it anew. It's all been updated. And even if you've been around for a long time, it would be good for you to know the updated material so that you can help disciple other people in this journey that we're on as a church. Let's, let, let's make the family that God has placed us in great by fighting for unity in every way. Let's worship together again.